All right, welcome to a new episode of the Cigar Snob Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez, and I am joined here in the office by my dog, Petey, because everybody else at Cigar Snob is out of town. However, I am joined over the phone oh, uh, by Scott Pierce, the executive director of the Premium Cigar Association. Scott, thank you for joining me, man. Hey, Nick, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. So um, we're going we're gonna to touch on a whole bunch of things here, but uh, as I tell a lot of our guests uh, on this podcast, one of the things that we've actually sort of been surprised about, and it continues to surprise us, is how many people come to the podcast uh, and, and discover Cigar Snob at all uh, that way. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this are not necessarily people who uh, you know, have their finger on the pulse of the cigar business. You know, maybe they're more casual smokers or people who don't consume a lot of cigar media. So uh, let's start with, you know, the assumption that people have no idea who you are and what PCA is. Give us a little bit of a, of a you know, abridged history here of, of the association. Sure, absolutely. Well, the Premium Cigar Association, or PCA, started off as the RTDA, which some people might be familiar with, the Retail Tobacco Dealers Association, or Dealers of America, I believe it was, started off about 88 years ago in the early 1930s as primarily a trade organization focused on uh, bringing the industry together, retailers, buying from manufacturers in a trade show type of atmosphere, as well as to work on tax issues and other regulatory issues. About 2007, the group got together, decided to rename and remove tobacco and dealers out of the name of the organization, uh, I think for obvious reasons when faced with the new regulatory world of 2007. And it changed to the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers Association, or IPCPR, which most people probably know it. Uh, so every year, there's a big, big trade show. It usually happens in the summer, more often than not, in Las Vegas. And that's where all the big names in the premium cigar industry get together. A lot of companies release their products then. Really big, elaborate booths are released. We have some good industry events and parties. Uh, and it's a time when the retailers come together to learn about the new products, meet with some new vendors and place their orders generally for the year. But that's kind of generally what the, it's been about. It's been the trade show. And we also hold the annual you know, meeting of the organization. So generally for about the past 88 years, it's been focused on uh, the retailers, the small brick and mortar mom and pop shops on up to the, the larger retailers that sell premium cigars and pipes and tobacco and accessories. Uh, and then also manufacturers and on those issues. So primarily, like I said, trade association, but also focused very intently on state and federal regulatory issues as well. Right. So you're the executive director. How long have you been uh, with PCA before that IPCPR? Yeah, just about two years. Got it. Uh, so who is, uh, and again, a lot of these are things that we both know, but just for the benefit of the person listening, who actually, um, let's call it, owns the PCA? Who, who runs the show, so to speak? Sure. So this is, it's a nonprofit trade organization. Uh, so it's not a for-profit entity. So this right. is run by a volunteer board. So the board is made up of the retailers who are the members of the organization. Right. And so we have 15 members of the board, um, one of which is an actual manufacturing seat. So we do have one voting board member that's a manufacturer who is the head of our advisory board. And we have an advisory board of eight or nine manufacturers that advise our board on manufacturing issues. And so the annual meeting of the retailers essentially is kind of what it turned into the trade show and how that all functions. Uh, so the owners of the organization really are the members who are the retailers and manufacturers. But again, it's a retailer organization, so it's that board. So as a nonprofit entity, we have a staff that works here in Washington, D.C., uh, who works with our volunteer leaders to, to run and operate everything from the trade show to membership, uh, member services, uh, and on and on. 
Right. So um, you mentioned, you know, that the the work of the PCA involves that sort of business and um, uh, facilitating purchasing and and all of the all that stuff side of it, but then also uh, the advocacy side or the we'll call it advocacy or lobbying or uh, or whatever term you you're most comfortable with. Um, one organization that listeners of the podcast and especially readers of the magazine are is you know more familiar with is Cigar Rights of America um in part because Glenn Loop who is the director there uh publishes more often than not we have a an op-ed from Glenn running in Cigar Snob and also he's been a guest on the podcast uh but talk a bit about the uh relationship between PCA and CRA Absolutely. CRA are fantastic partners of ours. We work very much hand in hand with them on all of our federal advocacy issues. We have weekly coordinating calls with them where we discuss our strategies as far as what offices are we visiting, what administration uh, agencies are we visiting, uh, what's our agenda, what's our message, etc. The main difference is, again, we're, we're the trade group, whereas with CRA, they're a consumer rights group. Um, and also with the manufacturers who sit on that board and help guide the, the direction there. And that's why we do have such a close relationship with them because it's really critical to our success that we have open lines of communication and that we're all carrying kind of a similar message forward um, and coordinate our, our strategies because we're a small niche industry. Uh, so therefore, we're, we're really kind of battling up against some uh, other industries that are much bigger and have much deeper pockets and wider spread of influence. So uh, we're, we're more surgical as opposed to a, a, a really big sort of tank and, you know, shoot and spray and pray approach. We're much more surgical on our approach. And so we do have a very close relationship with CRA um, and uh, a, good, a good working relationship and making some really, really good progress here over the past six months or so. Right, right. So I don't want to, not that I don't get too deep, but I don't want to do too much of like overview of, you know, the the federal regulation issue, because again, I think that people who listen to this podcast, even just occasionally have probably been exposed to some of that. Um, but talk a bit about what you see, let's say like the next six to 12 months looking like for uh, PCA and to whatever extent you want to, you know, fold them into that discussion, the CRA. Um which, by the way, just to kind of a little bit of a sidebar, um, we'll, we'll get to some of uh, the, the controversies that are, you know, uh, swirling uh, around <laughs> sure. trade show things. And But in a way, it, it, we like to do this podcast in a way that feels uh, relevant to the smoker. This isn't a trade podcast, but, um, you know, some of this does sort of touch uh, the smoker experience, uh, whether directly or not. Um, but... Some I've seen, you know, a lot of reference to CRA and PCA as having, you know, um, uh, having merged. Can you get a little more granular on like the specific nature of that relationship, and you know whether it's fair to call it a merger? Because depending on the way that you see it described, it can feel like a misnomer. Where you've been calling it a partnership. Yeah, yeah, no, it, we we have not merged, and we're two still separate entities as far as that's concerned. Uh, a lot for the aforementioned reasons in terms of some of our approaches, uh, and that's necessary, not for any other reason than, for example, there are a lot of retailer issues that we focus on whether it comes to tax and employment laws and things like that. Uh, the other part, too, is that we have uh, a, a nationwide regional model where we focus on state issues as well. Uh, so that's something I think it's important for your readers to take away that um, if they would like to help get involved in some of those things, we have a website called cigaraction.org 
it's no cost. We just simply ask to put in an email because we engage in, in most localities around this country when it comes to everything from tax increases, smoking bans, trying to get tax caps, flavor bans, anything that you can think of at the state level that would harm the smoking experience for consumers as well as retailers and therefore manufacturers we're involved in. Um, the, the merger, that's, that's kind of a, a misnomer a little bit. I know that there were talks and they had been ongoing for years and years and years. And it really stems from a place of how is it that we better use our resources? Again, we are small and niche. So it was really a focus on how do we better use our resources in order to accomplish our goals? And so those are those talks are continuous. We're always looking for ways in which we can maximize and, and not duplicate efforts and ensure that we're not both basically paying to do the same thing or right. both spending the same amount of energies as a staff on the same exact targets and or message. So that's why the coordination is important. It's very much a partnership. We are looking at ways in which we broaden that to be much more impactful. Uh, but I think the word mis uh, merger is a little bit of a misnomer in that sense because we do still operate dif uh, differently um, and are two separate entities. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so back to the question that I sort of meandered away from. Uh, talk a bit about what you see the next six to 12 months looking like. Uh, you know, and I guess it's nice that this is, we're having this conversation in January, so it feels like a nice round uh, period of time inside the calendar year. Uh, for the PCA, both on that advocacy side, uh, you know, what are some of the priorities there, but also on uh, the the more business-related uh, work that you do for your retail members, um, what do you, where do you see uh, that work taking the organization moving forward? Yeah, I love this question because we got a lot of, of really great stuff that we're working on that's going to become to fruition here. Uh, first, primarily, is the advocacy front with regulation. We've made some great progress and headway over the past six, seven months, doing a lot of work on Capitol Hill as well as with the administrative agencies. And by administrative agencies, we're looking at places like, obviously, the Food and Drug Administration, but also places like Health and Human Services, um, and in different, it's, it's basically death by acronyms, but it's TTB, OMB, OIRA, and then obviously the White House. And so we had some really good meetings a few months ago at the White House, Health and Human Services, and then the offices of stakeholder relations at the FDA. And, and you probably saw where um, Glenn kind of reported on this a little bit, where basically they told us that we're a low priority as far as enforcement is concerned. The reality is, is that doesn't offer us a lot of excitement because that still doesn't really solve our problem. Right. But we are at a place right now to where our still our most uh, ardent pressure we're putting on um, elected officials and administration is exemption because of the premium cigar is very, very different, uh, both product-wise and usage-wise, from the vaping uh, and the end devices that are out there. And that's what their primary target's on. However, we have also been working on um, a solution which is effectively as good as exemption, though it's not called that because the problem we do face, again, going back to other industries and other groups that have uh, much wider influence and deeper pockets than we do, uh, they're, they're very, very much against exemption. They've been hitting that hard as to how that just opens up this massive backdoor loophole to basically keep all these uh, other devices and uh, things at play. So for us, we are, we're, we're really, really excited because we're very, very close to getting a regulatory relief for the industry and something that is, while it's not permanent because you can never really make that claim in politics, but it provides a good regulatory wall around premium cigars where it protects the industry. It allows the industry to continue to operate with new products coming to market, doesn't threaten any new brands that have come out in the past, uh, what, since 2007, right? Those would be subject to review. 
So it keeps that pathway open for new products coming in. It also provides stability for the retailers and the manufacturers. So therefore, they can start to operate in a way that they can start looking at growth as opposed to not reinvesting back in the business right now because they have no idea what's going to happen. And then also, you know, keeping that pathway open is, is important for all of your listeners and readers as they love cigars, that these new products have the ability to come to market, that they're sold responsibly to them, you know, in, in ways through their tobacconist and, and other places where they like to get their cigars. So that's where we're, where we're looking at right now federally. And over the next six months, we're trying to get all of this accomplished before, well, A, we got to do it before May, the May 20 deadline that the Maryland judges sort of arbitrarily threw down. And we've got some lawsuits in there putting in a motion for stay. Um, but beyond that, if President Trump does not get reelected, we would like to have anything we have done in by August because if, if it's after August, it's, it's subject to congressional review. If he is, in fact, not reelected, uh, it's a bill that was passed to where you can't basically just as a lame duck president go and pass a bunch of things and not have it subject to congressional review. Right. So that's what we're focused on basically over the next eight months is to get that done. We've had so much significant progress. The FDA, this Office of Stakeholder Relations, uh, was very, very uh, uh, sort of effusive in, in his um praise of our small mom and pop shop uh, industry, our story, what we're doing, uh, really wanting to help us and work with us in that regard. Uh, the White House is, is on full tilt for uh, for our cause and putting pressure where they can. And so we're, we're close. We're really, really close. And we're just hoping that the rest of these dominoes lined up and we should have a really good solution for the industry here in a little bit. Yeah. So I guess before we, we go on to uh, to the business side, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the impact or the importance of a Trump re-election. Uh, I'll editorialize a little bit here, and I'll say that I think it's probably pretty clear to most people in the, indus- in the industry that at least the cigar industry would be better off with a Trump than any of the other alternatives that seem you know, uh, likely right now. Um, <clears throat> but how would you characterize, you know, now that we're a couple of years into this, uh, the reality of Trump's presidency for the cigar industry as compared to maybe what the expectations or hopes were going into November 2016? Because I know that at uh, at the yeah. IPCPR trade show just before that election, uh, we did a little, I wouldn't call it a poll. It was more like a you know video where we went through a questionnaire and among other things, like boxers or briefs, we were asking, who are you voting for <laughs> in this election? And uh, there was a lot of excitement, at least from a you know small business owner standpoint, about you know uh, about getting a President Trump uh, into office, right? Even from people who maybe were not huge fans on other fronts, it seemed like the vast majority of people thought, you know, well, this is very clearly going to be you know a big win for us. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, now that we're a few years in, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of these issues with the uh, with the FDA regulation. I think a lot of people's hopes were that it would be quashed a lot more than it had been than it has been by now. You've got the the tobacco purchase age uh, change that was signed. So, from your perspective, you know, give me like a sort of a diagnosis of you know how how did you feel about this when you when you took this job with uh, with PCA, and how do you see things now? Yeah, I think that. Um Versus when I took it versus now, um, I'm still every bit as optimistic as I was when I first came in. In terms of the Trump administration, the difficulty with that is that he is not a cigar smoker, um, doesn't like it. Um, and the other part, too, 
I don't know if people truly understood the huge impact that vaping was going to have on the rest of the tobacco industries. And that's been one of the biggest things. And, and he hasn't wanted to wait into it, even though he did, because he was pressured by other conservative groups to get into it. So that's kind of really where that stands. So the interesting thing, and the reason why we made some headway, so our federal affairs director wrote an op-ed that appeared a little while ago, and it was entitled uh, uh, The FDA, a rogue story, basically, that almost every other agency in the Trump administration really took on with his deregulatory framework that he brought in with him and ran with it. And we've seen that in a bunch of other areas, but it has not happened with the FDA and it certainly has not happened in this industry. And that's kind of one of the things that we've, we've been pressuring the White House on is it's worked everywhere else. It's, it's what you, you know, you guys have implemented this everywhere else. Why is it that it hasn't translated over here for this issue? And Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, was at least sympathetic enough to be able to open up the commenting period so that there could be a premium cigar question on there, uh, as opposed to just continuing to drive forward and lumping it in with everything else. So, you know, the uh, w- one of the things that's really interesting is, while you know, politics is really strange and the relationships that exist and how that all works out, Sometimes you might think it's cut and dried that, oh, so-and-so gets in, it's, it's the death knell for this industry. Right. But, for example, we, we have you know, some of our manufacturers have very close relationships with the Biden family, for example. So, and oftentimes, you know, because the, the other side right now, which happens to be the Democrats, because they're not the ones that hold the executive office, they oftentimes set themselves up to be contrarian. And the point there is, is that if it were a Democrat in office with Democrats with House control, it doesn't seem so contrary that if they wanted to get something done, it's a little bit easier. And for us, we're in a really interesting position because we're a niche enough industry that it's not like the Republicans would be, quote unquote, gifting their Democrats a win by having them do something for us, uh, because it is also still seen as kind of primarily a Republican issue. But at the end of the day, you look at it with Congresswoman Kathy Castor and Shalala down in Florida they have both been, you know, big advocates for the premium cigar industry. Kathy Castor is in Tampa, right? She oversees the the Ybor City and that whole history there. Uh, Shalala in Miami, which is where I believe you're at, right? right. So I mean, it's 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 not nearly as cut and dried, I think, as people like to 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 assume it. It really is. Once you start working uh, up on Capitol Hill, you realize pretty quickly that the vast majority of stuff that you see on TV is not kind of the real working relationships that happen on Capitol Hill. So as far as a different uh, administration coming in, I still think it's kind of a wait and see. I think, it, you know, look, right now, the deregulatory framework that's in place that we can continue to use and put pressure on is absolutely going to be easier for us because we don't have to rebuild all of this if Trump does not get reelected. And then there's a big question mark of coming in, how that all shakes out with people in administration, uh, bureaucratic leadership positions at the FDA and other places, more specifically places like the Health and Human Services and then the White House General Counsel and things like that. So um, that's what, again, why we're why we're so focused on getting all of this done in the next six to eight months, because we don't want to have to be subject to the whims of elections. And if somebody has something negative that they have in terms of cigar smoking to come in and just be able to change things, that's really against the will of the people and, quite frankly, possibly unconstitutional. That's why we're trying to build this regulatory wall around ourselves so that what way we just want the stability to be able to continue to operate that we have. Product hasn't changed in four or five hundred years, right. so there's no reason to go through this mess. Um, and let, let let this industry, which is 
you know, the administration, the FDA, everybody, they know we're not a problem. They've admitted that the trouble they're facing is how do they protect us while also being able to attack the industries that they want to attack or go after, or I guess attack might be too strong of a word, but also at the same time, uh, appeasing the health groups, the campaign for tobacco free kids, et cetera, uh, on both sides. And so that's, that's the basically minefield that we're navigating right now. But like I said, I'm very, very optimistic that we've done such good work right now. I think that we're very close to getting a, a good, um, I don't want to call it a final solution, but a very, very good solution that will provide that stability to have uh, create a sustainable growth for the industry. Sure. Hey, this is Nick interrupting to bring you a word from our sponsor, Viva La Vida. Brothers Billy and Gus Fakie, former owners of the Cigar Inn retail shops in New York City, have put their years of experience serving a broad range of cigar smokers into their new cigar company, Artesano del Tobacco. Their first release, Viva La Vida, is a Nicaraguan puro produced at the H.A. Fernandez factory. Viva La Vida is available in five Vitolas, a 6.5x54 Torpedo, a 6x54 Toro, a 6x60 Gran Toro, a 5x54 Robusto, and a limited edition Diademas Finas, which is a beautifully made Perfecto with 6.5x52. Prices range from $10.50 for the Robusto up to $14.50 for that limited edition Diademas Finas. The cigars are not only made by A.J. Fernandez, but also distributed by A.J. Fernandez. Viva La Vida cigars are only available in brick and mortar cigar shops, so ask your local retailer for Viva La Vida or look them up at artesanodeltobacco.net. You can also connect with them via their Facebook and Instagram pages at Artesano del Tobacco. That's tobacco in English, Artesano del T-O-B-A-C-C-O. Now back to the interview. So I want to I want to transition to the other side of what you all do, but we'll use this last uh, you know regulation question uh, as a segue there. Um, later on in this conversation, we'll talk about um, what manufacturers are doing, but on the question of retailers and even uh, smoker engagement on this issue, one of the sort of persistent gripes that I hear, uh, not about PCA, but just about the the this whole fight. Uh, whenever I'm traveling around meeting tobacconists around the country is um, that almost to a city, uh, there are one or two very highly engaged uh, retailers in town who are just perennially frustrated with how unengaged uh, their competitors are, who, you know, they, they want to, you know, uh, feel like they're at least on the same team on this question, right? Um yeah. What do you think? Um, uh, what do you think it is that isn't working? And do you all have uh, I don't know plans for some new approach or new tools or whatever that might be for engaging not only uh, those retailers who maybe have not been quite as engaged as as you'd hope they would be, but but also their customers, right? Because there's uh, I think this is one of those industries where. You know, the business owner has a much more personal, intimate relationship where, you know, those relationships can probably be leveraged more than, say, if this was like a restaurant question or something. Absolutely. That, that is the main reason why we launched CigarAction.org is for that very reason. You know, we are able to identify the, the various locations. So when you sign up, we, we can get the, the word out and we ask our retailers to continue to reach out. And that's really kind of the, 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 the crux of the matter is, is that we need 
to because there aren't that many true tobacconist retail stores throughout the country. We're in pretty much every elected official's district that's out there. But at the end of the day, it's not like it's, you know, you know, 7-Elevens or Starbucks or things like that, right? In certain districts, we might only have one or two stores. And so you have two store owners that show up because they're, you know, advocating things on their own state Capitol Hill. If that store owner can show up with 10 or 15 consumers, that makes a world of difference because it's a multiplier effect when you can have constituents show up because if you're a constituent, maybe you're a business owner in that district as well, but you have family members, you have friends, you have a wider sphere of influence and elected officials recognize that, you know, and so business owner coming in as a premium tobacconist, that's very important for them because they employ people, they have business taxes, they have personal taxes, that all resonates, but you show up with another 15, 20 people, two or three stores now, 40, 50 people, has a massive multiplier effect. And so that's what we're working on. And that's what we use CigarAction.org to engage in. We also have other state initiatives that we will reach out to our retailers in specific states. For example, uh, you know, last, I think it was last year, might have been the year before, um, Oklahoma wanted to move to a smoking ban, you know, across the board. So we reached out to the retailers there, energized that base and consumers and worked to defeat it. We worked in New Mexico with our retailers and consumers to provide a cigar cap there at 50 cents so that they could look and see, yes, we'll realize more state tax revenue if we put a cap because more sales would happen in state as opposed to things like internet sales where they don't realize some of those um, revenues. Uh, or even in Arizona where we got for pipe tobacco for Cavendish, we're able to get that back into a relative price with everybody and make that less expensive and the tax less burdensome on Cavendish pipe tobacco, for example. So the means we're reaching out more consistently. We uh, have a couple of newsletters that go out every single month, e emails for state specific issues uh, that go out whenever they come up and we can digest them and send them out for action alerts for our, for our retailers. Uh, but then also consistently for their consumers as well. So any consumer that's listening or that reads the magazine, please go to cigaraction.org and sign up so that way we can connect with you if there's ever any issues, importantly locally, because really when issues come up, you mentioned you know Tobacco 21, they usually start at the state level. Now we saw a massive coordinated 50 statewide, almost identical bills dropped for raising the age. It was done by Altria. We knew that because we went into state legislators and they said, hey, Altria is doing this, you need to fight with them. Um, but it was all released all at the same time. Um, and so stuff starts at the state level, it's up to the federal level. It rarely, rarely happens to where an issue, a regulatory issue would start at the federal level and then come down to the state issue. So again, cigaraction.org, that's our best way of being able to activate our army of consumers as well as our retailers. Got it. All right. So we'll return to some of this regulation stuff a little bit down the line, but uh, let's talk a bit about you know, again, for people who are, especially for uh, your average smoker, uh, talk a bit about uh, what this trade show looks like. So I, I came to Cigar Snob, uh, and this was my first sort of, uh, you know, immersion in the cigar industry. I didn't come from like a, a blog or a, uh, I was, before this, I was working uh, at a software company in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm from Miami originally, but I was up, I was in Wisconsin for a few years. And then before that, I was in Missouri for four years. Um and then I, I came to Cigar Snob and realized how, uh, in a lot of good ways, uh, but this is a very weird industry, including <laughs> the trade show. Uh, it, it functions in a way that's very different from a lot of other industries. So, for example, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening go to trade shows in whatever thing they do for a living. Uh, and it's usually not the case that a trade show is built so directly and explicitly for transacting on the trade show floor. Um, 
Right. So talk a bit about about that, about how that model comes up and uh, how, to whatever extent it has, it's changed over the years, right? Because um, – uh, so we'll start there. Talk a bit about just how that trade show works, because I think it's sort of a mystery, especially to sort of like more casual smokers. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the more uh, passionate smokers probably have seen the blogs and your coverage and others about what goes on at the trade show and even seen pictures or videos and things like that. But, uh, you know, it's it's a sight to behold. The first one I walked into a couple of years ago, I was blown away, blown away by the booths. And so, you know, they're small booths. They're small 10 by 10 tabletops and things like that. But when you walk in and you see the size of these booths and, and the amount of uh, detail and, and, and everything else that goes into it, I mean, these beautiful hardwood floors and these display cases and everything else, some of which are larger than your average retail store. And so you walk in and, and the other part that's really interesting about this, and, you know, my background has been in association management for about 20 years uh, primarily. And what was interesting, you know, and I've done different jobs, but I used to do exhibits and I used to go to shows and, and sell and, and promote and things like that. And so it was very different coming to this show, just as you pointed out, because you have a couple of places in your average trade show where people could sit down and interact, but it's mostly just sort of quick engagement and lead generation. Whereas here, yeah, these massive booths that are set up, but then it's all places for people to sit down and tables. And then you walk in and you can see 30, 40, 50 people in some of the larger manufacturer booths sitting down for extended periods of time uh, they've got appointments they're sitting down 45 minutes an hour plus going through what they want to order and going through different products and, and everything else and, and you know placing those orders at the show and so it really is has been driven by that um, you know in today's day and age it's it's it, it needs to transition and it's not the only industry that's dealing with this I mean I go to a lot of different industry events that are exhibit industry and, and association industry events. Um, I don't know if there's really any industry that's not facing the challenge right now of how do you evolve in today's day and age with technology and needs to stay the most relevant and provide the most value. And so we're at that crossroads as well. So the trade show really is and has been driven by that vendor relationship and by being able to come in and place orders. Um, and if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you're looking even 20, 25 years ago, where coming in, you get to see new brands that didn't really necessarily have the means to get in front of retailers. Um, it's where they would release their brands, release their products, et cetera. But also on the flip side of it, it also allows those smaller companies to not have to really worry about investing in a sales force to kick off and get exposure and retailers to be able to come and buy, you know, at a time that's concentrated and get as much savings as possible uh, because they're, all these products were discounted because they were doing it and selling at the same time. All of that has changed by and large. You know, the Internet and social media and some of these other things have really provided brands a way to launch, to get recognition. It allows for more consistent annual selling points as opposed to a concentrated during one time of the year or a couple of times depending upon different events that are out there. So that's in a nutshell kind of what that, the, the trade show is. And right now we're really kind of at a, at, a, at a pivotal point to figure out how exactly do we evolve it to make sure that it maintains its value in terms of the trade show components, uh, but also expanding it to how do we offer more value to the body at large of both ma of manufacturers and retailers. Got it. So um, we'll, uh, we'll get into, you know, some of the uh, – those controversies that I was talking about before that there there is uh, an issue that that we have discussed here at Cigar Snob. I don't know whether we've ever done it publicly. If we haven't, it's just been by coincidence. But we we do have, uh, especially this last trade show, uh, 
there was a there was a change. It was not PCA's fault, but the, I'm going to go ahead and just insert myself personally here and ask you for a commitment to work on this. In an industry that is so dominated by uh, by Cuban Americans and by Cuban exiles, um, it is so frustrating that these Vegas uh, uh, convention center unions succeeded in forcing the Cuban coffee trafficking on the trade show floor into the shadows. Um, so apparently there were rules that you couldn't pour people coffee and make people espresso if they were going to leave your booth. And I'd like to know whether there's anything that we can do. Maybe we activate the listeners of this podcast or the rest of the industry because uh, it was hard. It was hard uh, spiriting coffee around the trade show floor, having to go to, you know, well, I won't name them because who knows if they'll be fined retroactively by the <laughs> by the convention center. But um, is that something we can do anything about? Because uh, Cuban coffee fuels that trade show and we should be able to do that out in the open. Yeah, that's a great. I, I had no idea. I'm sorry, I didn't even hear about that. So they actually came after you because it was Cuban coffee specifically, or just, no, no, because, no, because it wasn't their, their, no, because it wasn't their coffee. For, that's that's what it was. It was that it wasn't their coffee, yeah. and so you had some manufacturers who. So, for example, Oliva stopped. I, I think they might have even stopped. You know, every year they've got their espresso machine, but they started getting uh, you know warnings from the uh, from the trade show people. I think because people were taking the coffee at Oliva, but then of course you may not finish your coffee by the time you want to leave to another booth. And so there was like all these, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of surveillance of whether coffees were crossing uh, the aisles. And because I guess the thing is that they want you to buy their coffee. Uh, and there were other people who were then, you know, being a little more bold about it. And they would keep they move their espresso makers into the storage areas. And so if you knew somebody who knew somebody, you could go and get yourself a coffee. And, you know, oh, here's a here's a cardboard box to hide it in so you can take it back to your booth and share with your team. <laughs> so there was a lot of this like weird black market for coffee thing happening. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, even at the Las Vegas Convention Center uh, a couple of years ago, my first show, um, I remember one exhibitor getting in trouble because they brought in some sandwiches just for their staff to eat, and they came down on them because it was basically too much food. And so I was pulled in, and I remember asking the question. I was like, I don't understand what the issue is here. And the food and service, food and beverage director was like, well, it's just too much food they're bringing in. I said, I don't understand. If, if they were to walk out and go just to, like, the Starbucks and buy a sandwich and bring it in, you're going to charge them for it? And she was like, no, because it, they went and bought the sandwiches there. They just were bringing them into the show floor. She said, for this amount, it would constitute the fact that they need to pay the catering charge. Right. And I was like, That's Are what you? they want. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So I, the other part, too, where they may have been more heightened on the sensitivity is that we actually did have a manufacturer that paid to be the coffee sponsor for the show floor. So while in booth was uh, fine, well, we did have somebody that paid for the, for the brand to be able to have the coffee carts and do that. So that may have heightened the sensitivity around taking coffee around all over the place as opposed to just in the booth maybe maybe all right so anyway i, I don't so know that's when, a good question though. i don't know what yeah, needs well, to happen. I'll, I'll make sure that i, I know yeah, i'll make sure we take a look at that yeah i know everybody that actually sells cigars uh and is buying and selling on the trade show floor is very concerned about other bigger questions but because we're cigar snob and we're just kind of hanging out and putting microphones in people's faces our number one priority is this cuban coffee uh <laughs> so we'll, yeah no, we'll totally be the, get it we'll be the tip of the spear on that issue if you need us to be <laughs> <laughs> outstanding outstanding um all right so uh let's move on to some of the the stuff that's been swirling around lately which again you know a lot of our listeners may not even be aware of any of this but um 
uh, I'll just sort of throw some of this stuff out there and, and you give me your general reactions, which I, I don't think that there's been very much of out in, in public. Um, I know Charlie Minato at Half Wheel, who we have a, a you know friendly relationship with, wrote a thing recently where you know there were a lot of mentions in there of, you know, the PCA is not commenting, the PCA is not commenting. So um, let's, uh, let's kind of run through this and you let me know, you know, when we get to those appropriate times, like whether it's that it's that you're just not commenting in general or you just didn't get back to certain people before they published or whatever it may be. So, um, all right, so this trade show has been going on for a while. Uh, I think, you know, whatever the numbers may be, I, I would say, you know, I think we're comfortable saying from our own experience that uh, the sense people get, even if it's only anecdotal, is that uh, attendance has taken a hit over over the course of, you know, the last several years at least. Um so tell me from from your perspective with the data that you have is there something to that or is there just some kind of a strange disconnect between people's sense of it and the numbers of what attendance looks like over the last several years yeah we you know we did this uh, so there's a lot of different factors that go into this and when you talk about attendance one of the things that it kind of comes down to is what kind of attendance are you really looking for um, so we, I mentioned earlier, we have an advisory board of manufacturers and for several years, they kept asking the retailer organization component of it to crack down and make sure that they were getting good retailers that were pretty much predominantly premium cigar and pipe tobacconists. So if you basically had a hookah shop or a vape shop or a head shop or any of these other things, and you're only selling two or three facings or something like that. Uh, they really didn't necessarily think it was a good idea to have those folks at the trade show because their orders were not very big. And so it was really this concerted effort. Let's really make sure that it's, it's, it's for the industry, it's by the industry and for the industry in that regard. So there's that component to it. The other thing to look at, too, is the number of stores that are represented at the show has not drastically decreased. And when you look at it, there's a lot of, of uh, acquisitions um, and you look at um, Smoker Friendly, for example, out of Colorado, they're, you know, 100 plus places around the country just acquired another smoke uh, shop um, with a bunch of locations. And I'm sorry, the name just escaped me who they acquired. So that now account is absorbed by them. So Smoker Friendly is one account that comes to the trade show. But now they represent, let's just say it's 40 more stores. And that one store that they acquired is no longer part of it. So the same amount of stores are still represented, meaning the purchasing power is still represented on the show floor, but by less people. Okay. And so, so that's one, one thing that's happened um, as far as that area of, of, of attendance is concerned. The second portion is, just as we noted earlier, the trade show floor is pretty massive. And it's massive with, with the amount of booths and then the hallways and everything else of the walkways that we build out. And that's a couple hundred thousand square feet. And when you take into consideration, there are only so many premium tobacconists that are out there. And then we get roughly seven ninths of our retailer attendance comes to the show. I was at an industry event, like I mentioned earlier, for association executives. And there were roughly four or five times the amount of people attending that event as attend the PCA show. Yet the exhibit hall was roughly half the size of ours. And that still didn't even feel all that full. I mean, there were lots of people, but it wasn't like it was wall to wall people. Uh, and so that's another component is that we could probably have five, six, seven times the amount of attendees and the hall is still not going to feel as full as people want it to. The, the last part of it is, is like I mentioned earlier with the size of the booths, there are seven or eight booths that probably hold upwards of 40, 50 people or more at a pop. 
And so if they're full because they're the big brands and they're ordering and you've got 40, 50 people in five or six booths, I mean, that's three, 400 people that are not walking around at that point. And right. so at any given time, booths will be full, but honestly, you're not seeing a ton of people walking around until they actually have done their ordering and they get their time to walk around later on. So all those do contribute into it. Uh, from what we've seen, attendance is roughly flat, maybe slightly increasing over the past couple of years. The other thing is there's been some issues. We had to change locations back in 2017 in kind of mid mid stride. So that hurt attendance a little bit there. And then last year, attendance on the front end was front loaded because it was the weekend right before the 4th of July. And we know we had more people come at the beginning because we had basically almost a thousand people show up, a thousand more people showed up to that opening night party than had the previous five years attendance numbers. And so we, that's a definitive number because we got the bill for all the alcohol that was you know, sold there that night um, over what we had anticipated because we used the previous five years numbers. And so thank God the Sands actually said we're going to charge you per person as opposed to consumption because if it was consumption, it would have been twice the amount. Right. So those are all kind of the factors that are moving into it. And again, it, it kind of comes into play uh, of a number of issues in terms of the time of the year and um, how people can get away and a number of other things too. Uh, and also the reasons why people come to the trade show. And that's what we're looking into growing in a different way as well, as well as just what we talked about earlier, the functionality of the trade show in and of itself as being primarily a buying show and that being the driver for people coming. Right, right. Um, just to kind of stick with some of, well, actually you mentioned the show being full. Help me square uh, the circle here of uh the attendance being flat or slightly up, but then earlier we were talking about uh, some of that consolidation. By full, do you mean that it's the, are you still referring to buying power or is it that there are more people even in spite of some of that consolidation? Yeah, so when you look at, yeah, so I guess the easiest way is to explain when I talk about accounts, um, it's roughly flat, maybe a few less. Um, but they represent basically the same amount of stores, right? Okay. So again, smoker friendly's acquisition, that's one less account, but the same amount of stores are there. And so what ends up happening, the amount of people coming has gone up a little bit just because we're offering more things there for folks. They, people tend to come and divide up the trade show floor with different areas of responsibility if you're a large, uh, you know, larger retailer. Um, but so the amount of badges of people, you know, are, you know, 20, close to 2,100 people, uh, retailers walking the show floor. But there were about four or five less, I think, retailer accounts, uh, just, again, acquisitions and some other things there. So more people coming per store, wanting to take advantage of some of the education that we had to offer and some of the other programs. But, again, uh, the, the stores they represented was right. roughly the same, just a couple less of the accounts. Got it. Um, and uh, what percentage, and this, this may be a difficult thing to to put a number on, but however it is that you'd want to do it, give me a sense of, what portion nationally of tobacconists are actually members of PCA? That is a great question. Uh, I will preface my response by saying I often tell people one of the things that I love most about this industry is that it's got that good, old-fashioned, relationship-driven industry, right? And that's that's very charming about the industry, its relationships, and, and kind of familial in that way. The other thing that really frustrates me about the industry is that it's old fashioned and we can't get a lot of the data that we really kind of need. So we've been embarking upon this, you know, this large ambitious project of getting market intelligence to truly understand 
what is the real market of true tobacconists that are out there uh, and, and, and really defining that. The, the difficulty lies in how do we really define that. I mentioned earlier there are certain stores that might only carry four or five facings. Do we consider that a tobacconist if they're really primarily not in that game? But then at the same time, we've got people like, uh, I think it's ABC in Florida, um, mm-hmm. and Specs, Benny's, Total Wine. You know, these people primarily sell things like alcohol, right. but they have really large humidors in a number of stores that right. sell a lot of product. And so do we consider those guys tobacconists as well? And so for us, we're really trying to get a true handle on it. I can tell you that we have uh, roughly 2,800 stores that belong to us. And that roughly represents 970 accounts. So accounts with total stores then is what we're referring to there. Right. Uh, we're trying to determine what size really exists out there. Is it 1,500 uh, stores that represent 3,500 or accounts that represent 3,500 stores? We're trying to determine that, and we're trying to do that by how we clearly define what a tobacconist really is, premium tobacconist really is, and how we would count that. Okay. Uh, now, you, you mentioned that um, earlier in this conversation that PCA is primarily uh, built to you know look out for the interests of the brick-and-mortar uh, retailer. Talk a bit about, about why that is. Why... Um, and and we'll segue into uh, an open letter that I'm sure you're aware of here, but talk a bit about uh, PCA's reasoning for sort of prioritizing the brick and mortar, um, the brick and mortar business owner, and also the family owned thing. So I, you in in a um, uh, sorry, I think it was a press release that you all put out. There are a lot of references to uh, to family owned companies as well that are still engaged in the trade show. So talk about why those two characteristics of a business are important to the association. Yeah, sure. When it was founded back in 1933, it was, again, founded as the retail tobacco dealers, right? And so retail has always been the component. It's who set up the organization for that very reason. Uh, and then even when it was changed to IPCPR, the R, International Premium Cigar and Pie Retailers Association, when we rebranded again, um, we went through a lot of, of – uh, consideration, internal debates, and, and everything about do we keep retailers in, do we not? Because the main thrust of the final rebrand was really all about how are we communicating with lawmakers, legislators, et cetera, and what is the message we need to communicate through our brand? And so we ultimately decided hey, let's focus on premium cigar because that's the exemption, that's the language, that's et cetera. So we're really set up for the retail because brick and mortar needs to have a good voice both locally and nationally, right? Small business, we're really tied in with the small business administration as well. And at a time, particularly modern era, uh, there's a huge transition with, with retail, how that actually works and functions. And again, going back to, it's kind of an old school industry. Yes. But again, retailers also need to be able to learn and have resources in this new world in order to coup, to evolve their models to continue to provide better value to consumers so that they can thrive. And so um, that's primarily why we're focused on that. We talked about family businesses in the press release that we put out there because, again, when you look at who has built this industry to what it is now and how it's functioning, primarily it are found their family-owned businesses. And that's one of the strengths of the messages that we do carry to lawmakers and policymakers is that right there is that these are small businesses they're family-owned businesses because that juxtaposition against what big tobacco stands for again going back to you know altria's tobacco 21 going back to the philip morris days etc that's how they view things right and they they attach that to the way jewel operates so any chance that we get to 
carve ourselves away from that message and say, no, we are small companies in a premium craft industry that's very, very different. Just because they happen to use the plant, it does not necessarily mean that it's the same plant. It's not necessarily mean that they're the same industries. Right. And so, um, so, so in that regard, uh, you know, so yeah, you can look at, you know, different, you know, liquor companies or spirit companies and say, well, they and Del Monte are the same just because Del Monte, you know, cans corn. They're two completely different industries, right? And it's kind of the same thing. So for us to focus on the retailer is, like I said, you know, the, that's who needs a lot of these resources. There's a way for them to come together to have a combined collective voice that's louder and more effective. So that's uh, primarily why there, um, and why we continue to be that retailer voice is because that is historically who we have been and what our mission is all about. Sure. So you, um, we, we've talked a, a couple of times or mentioned a couple of times the definition of premium cigars, although that's that's a little bit of a dicier question than than we've really you know gotten into in this conversation. Um, talk a bit about how PCA. Uh, for its lobbying purposes, is pushing to have premium cigars defined for you know, right for purposes of an exemption and you know defining what it is that the association is defending, and mm-hmm. um, and then you know I want to talk a little bit about the fact that there are and it's it's sort of unavoidable right because at some point if you're asking to exempt one thing from things that affect other products you've got to draw a line somewhere but there's a sort of unavoidable byproduct of that, that, you know, you're, you're going to end up with some amount of division in the industry, but let's start with how is PCA for its purposes, defining premium cigars? So that is a very, very interesting question because it's nuanced and it's layered. And by that, I mean, there's a very real difference between what we do at a local and state level versus what's going on at the federal level. So we'll start at the federal level. There's a bill in the Senate S-9 sponsored by Senator Rubio that has one definition that's been around, and it's kind of was collectively supported. But then H.R. 1854 on the House side came out, and one of the big differences there, and that's led by uh, Congresswoman uh, Kathy Castro from Tampa, the biggest difference there has been because of the vaping, the one big word, and it's an F word, <laughs> uh, has been around that, that causes a lot of uh, congressman senators pause is the flavor word right. and so what exactly does that mean and so um the definitions one doesn't mention it the other one mentions characterizing flavors and i can tell you from experience that when we go in and meet with different policymakers, uh for those that are traditionally on the democrat side who have never had conversations with this who do understand the difference in premium cigars many of whom if not most have enjoyed a premium cigar from time to time and do so regularly throughout the year the one question, well, two main questions we would always get before Tobacco 21 passed. First question is, where do you stand on Tobacco 21? And the second question is, does this now allow an exemption for flavors? And if the answer is to yes to either of those, then there's really nothing for us to talk about. So again, the conversations have to be nuanced. One thing that's very, very clear is that I'm not really sure I've ever met a policymaker in the modern era who is going to risk their career for tobacco. And so what we have to do and what most politics are is, number one, it's a marathon. And number two is it is a series of relationships that you basically use to leverage in different ways to try to get you to where you want to go. And so for us, that's the nuance that we're working on here is how do we leverage these relationships? And so you mentioned earlier about statements. I realize it wasn't related to policy, but, you know, oftentimes 
mean, we know when bills are dropping. We're very well connected on Capitol Hill. We're connected and see everything that's going on at the states. We generally know when these things are coming down. If we haven't released something publicly, it's because there are six, seven steps down the road that we know are going to happen. And if we come out publicly in a certain instance, it could very well paint these legislators and policymakers into a corner where they can no longer act in our favor. They can no longer carry our message forward, et cetera. And it effectively kills us. And so it's one of those things to where, okay, well, we may lose this battle. We may have to be a little contrite here as far as this one's concerned because we want to win the war. And that's kind of the whole strategy behind how all of that takes place. Um, and so any listeners or any readers that have any sort of um, background in doing any kind of lobbying or advocacy work, I think they probably understand that pretty well. So it, it, that's kind of one of the, the, the issues with the exemption there. But I will say that we have consistently and are still going, particularly after this is the new year with all the states that have dropped these, but flavor bans and other things on the state level, we have fought and fought and fought last year. We invested heavily in presence in California, just California, uh, which was no small amount of time, energy, money, et cetera, to fight the flavor ban there and, and to defeat that. You know, and they're coming back around again. And the thing is, is what that does is it basically could effectively require all retailers and manufacturers to a manufacturer stop production or whatever else or cause their products to be illegal because if they've ever made statements about hints of notes under anything other than tobacco, they then call that being flavored. Right. So if you note that a cigar has hints of cocoa or cedar or whatever the case may be, uh, nutmeg, anything like that, therefore that would be classified as a flavored cigar. So we definitely fight that on multiple fronts. And like I said, it's, it, it's really difficult because it's not a simple black and, and white uh, thing when it comes to that. And there are varied interests and we understand that. And so we're just trying to forge the best path forward as possible. Uh, like again, trying to leverage all those relationships to get us to the point to where we can have that regulatory framework that protects us. Right. So, um, they never made an issue of this, but I, I think that there, you know, uh, there is a at least a delineation, right? In terms of, you know, you mentioned that there are other people who have there there are varied interests, and um, there are what people and it feels like such a I find it to be a corny term, but people have been referring to these big four uh, who uh, put out a press release jointly, I believe, uh, saying that they wouldn't be exhibiting at this upcoming PCA. Um, and the reason I said that there's a there's a connection just for the purposes of a segue is that these bigger companies also tend to have either uh, products or be invested or be owned by companies that are invested in whether it's uh, machine-made cigars or infused cigars mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Um, give me, just without even giving you a much more specific prompt than this, just tell me your story here of <laughs> what, what happened. Why are these people leaving as far as you can tell? <laughs> sure, absolutely. Uh, and that's, I guess I should have, uh, I, I, I apologize for not being a little bit more direct in the last answer. I could just, just give you sort of the, where everybody sort of agrees on is that, you know, 100% tobacco, wrapper, finder, biller, right? Wrapper, uh, wrapper, <laughs> binder, filler, um, uh, 100% tobacco, water, uh, vegetable glue, um, six pounds per 1,000. Um, it's a no filter, no tip. 
so, I mean, that's kind of really where that definition you know, begins with. And for the most part, everyone's kind of there. Um, as far as the, the four companies choosing not to, they didn't do it in a joint release as far as I understand. I believe they all issued their own statements. Well, and this they is, just all kind of hit. They and, all hit and by the, the way, just, just for the benefit of the person listening. So, and the one that I'm re- referring to is, I believe I got this one from Drew Estate, although in there they refer to themselves, you know, collectively as like we or, you know, we all arrived at this uh, independently, but, you know, we're putting Correct. this out together. Uh, but the companies here are Altadis USA, Davidoff of Geneva USA, Drew Estate, and uh, General or STG. So just for the benefit of the person, Correct. that's who yeah. we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, as far as our organization is concerned, we have been having conversations with, with them uh, for quite some time. And it, right before the trade show, after the trade show, and trying to do some follow-ups, um, you know, they, they list some of the issues there within the press release in terms of the trade show and costs and things like that. And some costs, you know, just even to your point with the, the uh, <laughs> on the show floor and the queue and coffee, that's nothing that we control. Same thing with the vast majority of the costs for those guys that are, are not really in our control. But, you know, we're we were open to working with them and um, and we really want to continue to. Uh, but I think that uh, kind of as you wrap that around and I think appropriately so. Uh, with the questions in terms of sort of advocacy, the definition of where things go, it, it, it kind of comes down to, I think, a handful of things. And I, and I think if I re- read the press releases correctly, they, they are outlined there. Um, and I think that you are seeing a new world in terms of the premium cigars being created right now because of what the regulation and what the goals of the regulators are for the industry and how that really works out. And it's causing divides and multiple divides within the industry, unfortunately, as you're looking at it, you mentioned that some of them are owned by larger companies that are in the mass market business and some of these other things. And so interests tend to diverge theirs. And so really that's kind of what we're looking at as far as what the new PCA looks like, what their involvement is with it. Um, you know, they had some requests in terms of things, not that we outright like said, no, that was never the case. Um, for the most part, it was, it was if you're looking for this transformation again, 88 years of being a retailer focused organization. If some of these changes were to happen, it needs to be done in a in a in a manner in a procedure in which it you know it involves an approval and it involves a bunch of other things. And we're willing to work in form working groups in order to address those issues. Um, but as far as the trade show being the major driver of it, I don't believe it's necessarily the main reason. Uh, maybe for one company, it, it might be a main driver for some things because of kind of some changes that they're making. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it just happens to be them really taking a look at their involvement with this organization um, and kind of the world that they're in right now versus kind of where we're at and trying to align those. That's generally my take from it. Uh, the trade show is a part of that. Uh, like I, I said before, you know, if, if it really is a cost issue, uh, kind of we're, again, like I said, we're, we're really, really close to being able to do something special for this industry uh, in terms of a regulatory victory. And, you know, like I don't care if it's a 10 by 10 at this point, uh, you know, we just would really like to be able to get the industry together and unified in solidarity to achieve this. And I know that there's some nuances to be worked out. I'm not naive in that sense. But I think at the end of the day, if we all put all of our best intellect onto it, we should be able to come up with a way to – to kind of carve this out and, and achieve a good victory for, you know, hopefully everybody involved. So. Sure. And, and, you know, this, and this is again, me just kind of, a, and the reason I keep making the distinction of this is me inserting myself is because I, I don't want for someone listening to this to think that I'm speaking for cigar snob, because for all I know, if we had more people here in the office with microphones, uh, we'd get, 
you know, just as many opinions on this. But, um, I mean, what do you make of the idea? And this is what I personally think is, you know, there is a certain amount of – of that frustration that's that's probably understandable because to and I understand to your point you know you've got to draw the line somewhere and you all are making a decision that's as much a strategic one as anything else and when you do that somebody's going to end up you know uh on the side of the line that they don't like um but you know there are people who would define for instance uh premium cigar as not having uh short filler but there are plenty of companies that make excellent short filler cigars with tobacco that, you know, the, uh, you know, we've gone and visited their factories that, you know, it's just, especially like the Belgians, for instance, um, you know, they're excellent cigars. There are other people who do long filler premium cigars where the tobacco is arguably, you know, um, the, the cigars absent any infusions, you know, are, are better than a lot of other, you know, quote unquote premium cigars on the market and, and check off all the boxes except for that they also go through this added step. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make of, or how, is there any part of, of that frustration that, that you understand? And, you know, and at the end of the day, like, can you really blame somebody for saying, all right, well, I mean, this is, this is what we do and this is the side of it that we ended up on. And, you know, uh, is there some amount of that that's just cutting off your nose to spite your face if you continue to participate? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's, I think, one of the most difficult things for any person is to truly put yourselves in another's place to try to understand their perspective. Uh, you know, that's one of the main challenges of my job, overseeing an organization like ours, right? It's a, we're not a private company to where it's just, I'm going to lay this flag down and, and, and go for it here. Um, and so, uh, absolutely, I think in that sense to where that's why it's, it's, it's controversial and that's why it's not easy. Right. And that's why, like I said, you know, the, the, the more we can kind of unite in terms of who's behind this specific standard and, and, and unfortunately in some ways, those terms have kind of been dictated to us by the FDA. You know, they put out their own definitions that we had to kind of work with and try to kind of push back on some other things too. Yeah. And so it, that that's kind of ultimately what it comes down to. And I can understand, I don't necessarily um, I can't say that I agree with the tactical output uh, of how it all went down. I think there may have been some extenuating circumstances that precipitated it. Uh, I, I, again, we have been in the conversations, so I can confidently say that I understand where they're coming from. But I also think that if we continue to stay at the table in, in good conversation, uh, in good faith that we should be able to come up with a solution. And if not, at the end of the day, at least if we can all look at each other in the eye and say to each other, we have given it everything we possibly have been able to. And at that point, then you just shake hands and, and we wish each other best of luck. But to be honest, I don't feel like we're at that point right now where we haven't reached that point right now. And so it, this is just one of those instances to where uh, maybe this does initiate some some further dialogues or changes or however that may be. But at the end of the day, again, I think staying engaged in the organization is still the best solution. It doesn't necessarily have to equate into uh, a, a very large booth and a very large expenditure, but at least staying engaged is, I think, still the appropriate action. Sure. And to be clear, I, I didn't speak to any of these people and have conversations where they told me, oh, you know, the, we're, we're on this side of, you know, on this other side of the line of the definition of a premium cigar, or we're invested in this or that. This is just me sort of, you know, uh, making observations from my, from my office here. Uh, but um, hopefully some of them will have this conversation as well uh, with, with us on the podcast. Um, 
In the uh, in the statement the PCA put out, uh, you mentioned having put together. Uh, let's see, uh, we have spent a combined four point five four point five million dollars just on litigation against uh, FDA regulatory oversight, and so that was uh, that's to date. So to, when you say to date, uh, how far back are we going to get to four point five million dollars spent? Uh, since we filed the lawsuits uh, in 2016. Okay, so since 2016, $4.5 million. Um, right, well, so the, those when they were filed, and so basically uh, I think that takes into consideration the last, so it's 2020, so it's the last three years, if I'm not mistaken, okay. uh, of, of what has been paid. So we're going to continue to pay more this year, a lot more, because we have a lot of stuff going on in the courts this year. Sure, sure. So, uh, and this is this will be my last question on that statement that uh, that those big four, which again, I find so corny and uncomfortable to say, but uh, <laughs> that those big four put out, <laughs> uh, the of the three bullet points, uh, the cost of, and I'm quoting here, uh, the cost of the event, which continues to rise, has consumed funds that could otherwise be used to defend our industry from regulatory and legislative attacks, which threaten the livelihood of each and every one of us. Setting aside the question, and that's an you know, end quote there, setting aside the question of uh, what those costs come from, because I, I, I understand your point as well, right? There's some costs that have nothing to do with you, right? You didn't, uh, and I think it's really cool, but nobody told Drew Estate to put a water tower in their booth. Uh, so if, if that's part of the cost of exhibiting, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's on you all and the same, you know, for all these big guys, but you know, whatever, that's part of the, that comes with the territory of being one of the bigger exhibitors. If you got to do a, a big blowout booth, um, but sort of respond a moment here to the question of really, I think what's at the heart of that bullet point is the trade show really the best vehicle to raise money for that fight? Because I have seen a lot of communication, be it from people who are going to be exhibiting or from the PCA, about like, you know, you got to go to the trade show to contribute to this fight. And so then the question uh, to a lot of people's minds is probably, okay, we all agree that this fight is important, and so the question ought to be, is this the best way to do that? Should that be like a primary selling point of going to the show? Should not the show just be about ROI for your business and then – the raising money for the legislative fight is a separate issue. Yes, I think that's an important question to ask because, and I think that question probably could have, should have been asked 15, 20 years ago, maybe. Um, and not even necessarily is it the best funding mechanism for XYZ, just for the mere fact of, as a business owner, you know, the diversity of revenues is always going to be what's best for your business because if, you know, one side gets chopped out or hit or whatever else, you still have these four or five other things that are still able to sustain you in that regard. Um, and so, you know, the board and the executive committee have, have been forward looking on that over the past few years and trying to determine how is it that we best move forward. And I will say that it was a theme that was a part of a, why the recruiter was looking for somebody of my background when they reached out to me about this position and a big part of what we discussed throughout my entire interview process that was all about that and looking at it. And I remember speaking about the fact that, you know, we need to take a look at if this trade show is in fact, as large of a driver of what brings in revenue, et cetera, because in the past years, that was easy because that's all they were really focused on was developing this trade show and kind of releasing it out and doing a couple of other things. So as long as the trade show was making the money for the trade show operationally, it was okay. But now when they decided to expand, obviously that becomes different. And so it is in a, it, where we are experiencing, I'll just call them growing pains for lack of a better term, sure. um, us transitioning to a full service organization as a way that a lot of different associations function. And that's not going to happen overnight. So is it the best model? I, 
most likely no. I mean, it's been done a good job to generate revenue and, and reserves and things like that for us to where we're able to invest in a property on Capitol Hill to where we host monthly events where we're getting, we probably will host over, you know, probably close to 1,500 or 2,000 uh, folks from Capitol Hill this year. Every single one of them turns around and becomes an advocate for the industry and their jobs, right? They're staffers, they're important people on Capitol Hill that influence policy. One thing that most people don't realize is that the country and the policies are really run in this country by, you know, 25 to 29-year-old staffers on Capitol Hill who research the the issues and then provide the documentation back to their, their bosses who are the elected officials. Because at the end of the day, you can't know everything about everything, right? And, and that's why our job to educate is so important. So, uh, so yeah, that's the main reason why we're looking at, at other ways to what are the funding models? What are the ways to engage the total industry? Because, again, you fall back on with within it, there's, you know, the bigger guys are putting the bigger money in, et cetera, et cetera. Is it, is it requisite? All those things have to be discussed and worked out. And so it's not necessarily just a straightforward response or resolution to that question, but it has been in motion. We are starting to, to put things into place. One of the things that, you know, I came into this, uh, you know, a lot of stuff here was kind of antiquated in terms of softwares that we had or didn't have here and in a number of things that was kind of going on just because they had never really had a need to pay that much attention to somewhat of the infrastructure that was here. Um, the stuff for the trade show was great because that's what they focused on. And now we're starting to get the stuff at the outreach, like cigaraction.org, for example. That stuff is coming up to speed. Our communications platforms now are coming up to speed. We've got the, the PCA magazine that's coming out there that's for the trade, and that's that's been launched, and that's going strong now. We're going to continue to grow that and, and use that as a way to get out to our retailers. So in that sense, yes, that's why we're looking to diversify revenue sources so that, and also create a different kind of funding model so that it – there are different ways to pay for the advocacy and the lobbying and lawsuits apart from just trying to rely upon using the trade show as some sort of philanthropic or altruistic event because, again, if we provide value, then the revenues will come. And that's what we're looking at both for the trade show and how we revitalize that as well as building out the other services of the association. Right. And I think that that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, might find encouraging, not that, you know, you're necessarily moving away from the trade show. I know a lot of people like the trade show, but, you know, uh, we we touched on this earlier. It's across industries, trade shows are just because of technology and the way that business is done, at the very least play a different role. And in some industries, they've had to phase out some of their trade show activities altogether. Um so expand a little more, to, and maybe maybe you all haven't had these discussions uh, in this kind of depth yet, uh, but what are some of the possibilities or some of the ideas that have been thrown around about ways to bring value outside of or maybe even in the absence of a trade show? The main thing that we are really looking at is trade shows are generally components of something larger not the reason that the event actually exists. And so for us, we have a very small annual meeting that is a part of the trade show uh, because kind of the bylaws require it and, and the trade shows where everyone gathers. And that's kind of the way the infrastructure has been built. And as we look at the evolution of the industry and the need for all of our members, we really do need an annual gathering of like-minded businesses and folks all involved to be able to come together to do a number of things. And a lot of it stems around kind of what you were asking about earlier, how do folks get involved? How do we do different things? 
both education-wise in terms of what are the compliance issues that we need to do. We're developing things in conjunction with some of the stuff that FDA has put out in order to help our retailers maintain compliance, especially in the, the new world of Tobacco 21 legislation. Uh, things like that um, help, but also being able to be involved as a member of the organization. And I think that's another thing that I, that I bring to bear here, and I think why they wanted to bring me in is with 20 years of association management experience, especially some past experience I've had in, in previous organizations, being able to implement some of these solutions and understanding what the best practices are of trade associations to, to take an annual meeting and transition it to a really good meeting of the membership. You know, a lot of our members are very passionate about what they do. They want a voice in this organization and using the annual meetings as a format to provide that to them. We've opened up committees for the first time ever and creating these committees for, for, for just general membership to volunteer and be a part of um, and as a way to, to get into a leadership role. And that's the way that exists in virtually most other trade associations. Uh, and once you are into those leadership roles, you understand basically it's, you, you get introduced to how it all functions, the time it takes, et cetera. So providing a lot more of the skin in the game for the retailers to come to this annual meeting of the membership, as well as intensified education and information, particularly, like I said, as it comes to regulation and compliance, uh, broader networking experiences, being able to meet other retailers to learn from about their experiences. Some of the best educational things that I've seen over the past few years have been almost these just sort of ad hoc conversations that have happened over dinner or drinks or whatever else, not even a part of, of a, an actual event that was being held, uh, where, for example, I had about a half a dozen retailers sitting around, and they just started talking about different issues they've had with securities in their stores and how they handled them. Uh, you know, other times where police were involved, were they not involved when they decided to call police, how they were doing certain things with either, you know, inebriated customers, et cetera. Focusing on that aspect of it, as well as being able to enhance the relationships of vendors and retailers so that, that both sides of the business then are benefiting and being able to you know, sell through better, smarter inventory management, et cetera, because that benefits both sides there. So those are some of the places that we are homing in on right now in order for us to start evolving to an actual annual meeting where retailers feel like, this is my organization. I actually have the ability to have input. I have the ability to have my voice heard. I have the ability to help put some things out there. It allows us as an organization to have a mechanism to get broader perspective involved. And, and quite honestly, it really does help the board and the executive committee understand. So when you think about some of the controversial issues and topics that you brought up, whether it's flavors or XYZ and some of these other things. Sure. When the industry has a forum or a summit or something along those lines to be able to come together and discuss, it, it, it's a definitive decision by the industry then. And there's clarity for the rest of the industry. And if, if it happens to not go your way, for example, you're there. You at least have had an opportunity to discuss with colleagues and have this forum in order for your voice to be heard. And if it doesn't go your way, hopefully – you know, it's okay because the rest of the industry is there, et cetera. So that's, I think, probably some of the most important things that we can do right now. Um, and then the trade show component of it, there are a host of different um, uh, ideas out there about trade shows, hosted buyer type of programs, different things um, uh, that can be done that I think that we are looking at. One of the key challenges we do have is finding a place that will allow us to smoke. So we've got a short list of places that will have us, that will still have space for us to be able to do a trade show. I still think the trade show component is necessary. I think it's important from an actual industry standpoint to where I think consumers get excited about when people are releasing new products 
And we do want to build that component, right? And that's where partnerships like with Cigar Snub come into play to where we can play up that component because we really want to be able to drive more excitement because that excitement can hopefully breed uh, more consumers getting introduced to premium cigars and, and growing that consumer base as well. So I do think that there is a place for us to evolve that component of it. Um, and so we'll see kind of how that evolves as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this is, uh, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of big questions there and, um, you know, some of those divides seem unavoidable, but, you know, just again, for the benefit of the person who's listening to this, this is very different from the sort of conversation we typically have on this podcast. Uh, we, we, and even in, I in, get that a lot when people have me on, they say, this is very different <laughs> than most of the interviews we have. Just because it's a it's a very weird position that, as far as the organization is in. So. Well, what, but what I mean is, I think it's you know is specifically in Cigar Snob's case because a lot of other cigar media, uh, let's take Half Wheel for instance. This is much more in their wheelhouse, uh, but a lot of other cigar media are almost as much for the trade as. Uh, or in the case of Half Wheel, I think that they're you know they're very open about like this is the trades cigar blog. Uh, but, you know we're very much a smoker facing magazine. Uh, and a lot of this might sound like inside baseball and very behind the scenes stuff, but in the end, you know, this is, uh, and this has been for so long, the way that uh, there's a very good chance your local tobacconist uh, has gone about shopping for and deciding, you know, what is going to be on their shelves for, you know, the better part of a year, if not the whole year. Uh, and it's it's the way they're discovering new product and all that, so... You know, so I, for one, you know, I'm I'm glad to hear that that those discussions are being had about you know be whether it's beyond or after a trade show, uh, you know, uh, whenever it is that that transition may happen, that there is you know discussion about uh, how to bring value in other places and affect the smoker's experience, which is what ultimately we're concerned with at Cigar Snob, whether that's in terms of the you know, the hospitality side or, you know, it's things that people don't tend to think about. You know, you brought up yourself, you know, anybody who's in the hospitality business and, you know, and has a, a storefront that people come into and out of, you know, there are going to be things like security issues. And most people have never been in the position of having to think about the fact that, you know, that like a bar or a restaurant or whatever, you could have some thing happen, you know, a safety issue at a cigar shop. Um but but it's good to hear that yeah, there's there's yeah. discussion of of PCA you know becoming a resource or more of a resource on that front as well and bringing value in different ways um, because I think yeah uh, you know my... uh, so I, I was just gonna say you know and and part of the reason that's that that's good to hear is you know we had a, a and this is just one example uh, not that there are so many but uh, you know one local shop here in Miami uh, at about the time of the last trade show. Um, the its owner was telling me that he didn't intend that he wasn't a member that he didn't intend to go and that he just felt like he was too small right like they're, they're, it's this thing where you know yeah yeah they talk about you know uh, it being not for these giant companies that it's for the family owned business but I'm too small you know there I, I there are places that have maybe like a cabinet and then when you start to kind of do the math of like the cost of going to the show and being there for X amount of time and all the costs that you incur. Uh, being a, uh, a human being in Las Vegas, <laughs> you start to think like, <laughs> how many cigars do I need to sell? Uh, so it's good to hear that, that there is, you know, uh, a thought yeah. going into yeah. how else you can bring somebody value beyond the trade show. Right. And also, so one of the things we talk about, and hopefully this isn't too far into the weeds for, for your membership, too much of the sausage being made, but you know, in essence, any business needs to truly understand what business they're really in and what the business model is, right? And so, yes, we're a nonprofit trade association, but 
the trade show being the main driver of kind of why this place has existed, it really exists as a sort of two-sided model. Uh, and so I've, I've often said, look, think of us almost like Xbox in that sense, right? We need the video game developers or the cigar makers on one side and the video game players on the other side who are the retailers coming into this. And so we need to basically take that model and we need to translate that into a 365-day-a-year uh, uh, engagement with our retailers in different ways. So that at the end of the day, while the big event, our Super Bowl, quote unquote, may be that trade show, what we're looking at doing is enhancing that experience with different levels throughout the year at different times. So if the guy is too small, we I've, I've gotten messages from folks saying, look, we continue to pay our dues because we know it's important to support the, the legislative efforts. But it's just my wife and I here. We can't take off for four days at our busiest time of the year to come there. So, and we are, we're looking at different times of the year. We've put out RFPs for different places in Florida, Texas, New Orleans, for, and then there's another place. Um, and at different times of the year, you know, in, you know, Q1 and Q2, just to see kind of what that might look like and, and, you know, holding the, at different times to see if, how attendance may or may not fluctuate and to see if people can potentially come. So all of these things are in development and in discussion, and we're really truly viewing it in a way of, how is it that we develop our innovation here in a way that can um, really attach to the outcomes our retailers need in order to drive successful businesses? And if we do that successfully, then it'll, it'll all flow. It'll all flow from there. Got it. Uh, is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to make sure we do before we call it a day here? I think the vast majority is is kind of what we talked about in just in a quick summation. And yeah, while it, it, it is unfortunate that the four have decided not to participate this year, you know, again, there's a lot that this organization does, and it's not just about four companies or just about X division of whatever company. It really is we're doing everything we can in order to benefit the industry as a whole. And so that's that's our primary purpose. I've made this joke a couple of times, so I apologize for anybody that's listening to this again. But I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Office Space, but when the boss lumber gets up and the signs behind him and basically says, you know, it's, it, is this good for the company? That's that's kind of our mantra here at the office is that everything that we do is geared towards with an eye of how do we protect and benefit the industry as a whole. And so if our retailers are going to benefit, if it's going to be able to grow their business, it's going to be able to do X, Y, Z. Same thing with the manufacturers. Um, we That's what our focus is on. And so it, it that's really what we're all about. And like I said, I know there's sometimes people want us to come out and make these state, you know, definitive statements and, and, you know, big messages and everything else. And if we don't, it's because we know that by doing that, it's going to potentially harm a relationship or not harm a relationship, but potentially weaken a stance that somebody who is carrying water for us will not be able to make in the future for the larger picture. And so that's kind of, that's just sort of the whole point there is, is that yes, those four companies may not be coming, but again, we're not just about those four companies. We're about the entire industry. I believe they know that. I believe that there's just some issues that need to be worked on. And I'm still hopeful that, that this will all get worked out. It may not be over the next few months, but I'm still hopeful that long-term and that this will be one organization united in solidarity um, for, for the good of the entire industry for, for future generations. All right. So with that, Scott, thank you very much, man, for, for taking the time out. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, doing another one of these, maybe about more fun stuff <laughs> in, in the not yeah, absolutely. future. We'll have to connect at the, yeah, we'll have to connect at the trade show and do some fun things and some other stuff. So it'll be fun. we got some interesting things we're working on, and we'll let people know kind of how that's going to shake out here in a few weeks. Uh, but I think we'll have, some, we'll have some more fun times at the trade show this year for sure. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. 
Thanks, Nick. Appreciate your time. Take Take care. care.